Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. My guest today is Janine Yunus. Janine was a public defender in New York City and is now working for the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Janine, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me back, Ian. So how are things in New York? Is Have things calmed down a little bit? <laughs> well, I moved to D.C., although I still I visit New York a lot, so I still know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, well. DC is is very masky. So they we we had a mask mandate from the end of July until just now, and uh, people everyone's still wearing masks. I'm the only one who doesn't in any of the stores I've gone. <laughs> New York does has not had a mask mandate for a while, so it's better in that respect. And but they have the vaccine passport program, so that's created a whole new level of craziness. Got it. And did you grow up in New York? I grew up in upstate New York, in Ithaca, so not a city from a smallish town of like 30,000 people. Got it. And why did you want to get into doing criminal law? I uh, decided to become a public defender because I sort of had always had a mistrust of the government and I saw, you know, how it abused its power and uh, indigent criminal defendants tend to be the most powerless people in the world. And, you know, I, I had read about and seen about many cases in which prosecutors abused their authority and really used their position to wield the heavy hand of the state against people who didn't really deserve it. So that was how I got into uh, public defense. I'm also a bit of a contrarian, so I enjoy, uh, I enjoy representing the people that nobody else wants to represent. You and me both. And, uh, <laughs> The society needs people like us, and I think it, it makes us good lawyers. It's part of the Socratic method, right, to, to question yeah. everything. It's like when a scientist creates a hypothesis, what's the first thing they do? They they challenge their own theory, and um, I feel like that's been lost in our society today. <laughs> right. I, I agree with that. It's been completely lost. <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about all the ways. Yeah, and so we're going to discuss the Ahmed Arbery case and the Kyle Rittenhouse case. And I'm so happy to have you on today because there's been so much misinformation in the corporate media about these two cases. And I see it all the time in social media, just people getting basic facts of the case completely wrong. Yeah. And I do think the jury's got them both right, you know, in both cases. And we need to trust the jury system and the backbone of our democracy. I agree with that statement. (laughs) Yeah, good. Well, you have a lot more experience dealing with juries than I do. I'm a workers' comp attorney and a social security disability attorney, so I just deal with judges. I don't really get to deal with juries. But um, in doing the background research for these cases, I do think the jury's got it right. So let's talk about these two controversial cases, and then we'll talk about the work you're doing with the new Civil Liberties Alliance with respect to vaccine mandates. Does that sound sure, good? good? Okay, cool. So let's start with start with the Ahmed Arbery case. He was 25 years old. And on February 23rd of 2020, he was just going for a jog. These two men, father, son, Travis McMichael, 35 years old. His father, Greg McMichael, 65 years old. They're at their house. They see this African-American man jogging by their neighborhood. They claim that there had been a recent string of burglaries in the neighborhood. There was some houses, some new construction going on there. So they thought he stole something, apparently, and they chased after him with a gun. Mr. Arbery ran for five minutes 
away from these people. You can imagine the fear that was put in just seeing a car pulling up, chasing them with the gun pointed at them. Anyways, a scuffle ensued and Travis, the son, shot Arbery and, and killed him. There was also apparently a neighbor involved. And I think his situation is a little bit more complicated. So the neighbor, he's a 52-year-old neighbor by the name of Roddy Bryan. He sees his neighbors flying down the street in a car chasing this man. So he gets out, sees what's going on, gets in his car, drives down, films the whole thing. He also gets charged under the felony murder rule. And I believe the underlying felony was false imprisonment. So all three of these men were ended up being convicted in uh, Mr. Arbery's death. And um, they are faced with life imprisonment, life in prison. And it's up to the judge if there's going to be a possibility of parole. So my first question to you is, I don't understand the conviction. So can you break that down to me? What does that mean when the when they're convicted of life in prison, but the judge can uh, give them parole? Like, what's the minimum amount of time they have to serve? I wouldn't know. That sounds like a, most of these laws are state laws. The sentencing laws are certainly very state based. I worked solely in New York when I did criminal law. Never heard of anything like that. If you, okay. got, you got life without parole, was life without parole? Um, you could get a sentence of like uh, fifty to life or something. And that's the meant the most you would serve as life, the you know, minimum you would serve as 50. So I'm not familiar with that uh that term or concept. Okay. Why don't you explain to the listeners what does it mean? What does the felony murder rule mean? So the felony murder rule, which is a highly problematic concept in my opinion, it's sort of I, I believe it originated in the 80s, possibly before when there's sort of a crime wave, and this was an attempt to deter people from getting involved in any crime. It's basically saying if you um, participate in a crime, say you decide to rob a store with no intent to murder anybody, your accomplice murders, ends up murdering the cashier or whomever, you can be charged with the murder and ultimately convicted. And this, you know, this sort of goes against basic principles of criminal law, which require that you have the intent to commit the, the, the crime in question to be convicted of it. And so here we're saying your, your co-defendants mens rea is imputed to you, even if, you know, and, and even if all the evidence shows, even if it's established, you actually really didn't want to kill anybody. It doesn't matter. The fact that you participated in the robbery means that you can be convicted of the murder. I am uh, extremely opposed to this rule. I actually had a number of cases where I thought it was a really grave injustice what happened to the uh, the defendant because he had agreed to participate in a lesser crime. His co-defendant ended up doing something stupid and much worse. Yeah, so the felony murder rule kind of removes intent. When you talk about mens rea, that's the whole principle of our criminal justice system. If you have a depraved heart, or if you, you know, what is it, malice aforethought, something like that, then you're going to get punished more than if, than say a heat of passion or um, things of that nature. Is that a fair overview? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can argue that it's reckless, you know, to engage in a robbery with your co-defendant and then it's reasonable for you, you know, maybe you could be convicted of reckless homicide. That could be a fair uh, outcome, in my opinion. But to say, well, we're going to take away the mens rea requirement entirely and whatever your co-defendant's mens rea was, you were imputing to you is not a valid criminal justice principle, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, uh, you can think of the scenario where you're with a friend and he says, hey, why don't you pull up to this gas station? I'm going to steal a case of beer. He goes in there. He ends up, I don't know, shooting the cashier and getting back in your car. Even though you had absolutely no knowledge that he would do this, you could be charged under the felony murder rule and sort of, I mean, you can get the same sentence as somebody who killed somebody with a depraved heart. Is that right? Yeah. And again, I think it would vary a little bit by state exactly how that scenario might be a little bit harder to prove than, for instance, you're both in the store. You Maybe you don't even, you know, you think you just have fake guns. So your co-defendant pulls out a real gun. I've seen cases like, like that and kills the cashier. Well, you had no idea that was going to happen. Of course, you have a little bit more involvement there because you're actually physically present. But I, I believe both, you know, depending on the state and the specific scheme, both could result in you being ultimately charged with a higher degree of murder. Yeah, and that's what makes the Ahmad Arbery case interesting is, you know, you have these three defense, these three defendants, the father, son, I kind of put in a different category, the neighbor, Roddy Bryan, I mean, he got charged with felony murder, he didn't know what was going on. He didn't talk to the father, son neighbors before this happened. He certainly did not premeditate this. And uh, he's facing life in prison right now. Yeah, yeah, that does not seem just to me. But from what, yeah, from what I understand, the other two seems like a, a good outcome. Yeah, definitely. You know, the thing is with both of these cases, it's like people trying to take justice into their own hands. And it's never the smart thing to do. And I think what most people need to, to realize is you cannot use deadly force to defend property, right? So let's just say, by the way, Mr. Arbery, there's no evidence that he committed any type of theft or anything in the neighborhood. But even if he did, you don't go chase somebody with a freaking shotgun and point it at their face, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, there, there's clearly no justification for what these people did. And uh, it sounds like being convicted of murder was the correct outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And you're going to love this as a, as a public defender. So I, I did a deep dive into this case. And the first prosecutor was a woman by the name of Jackie Johnson. And so one of the defendants, Greg McMichael, the father, used to work for uh, Jackie Johnson. He was like um, a private investigator. So she's actually now being charged with a, a felony of violating her oath and a misdemeanor for obstruction of justice. The indictment alleged she discouraged police from making the arrest against Travis and Craig McMichael. What's really troublesome about this case, a lot of things are, but these three men were not charged until two months later until after the video leaked. So, and there's actually some voicemails apparently on the former prosecutor's phone, Jackie Johnson from Greg McMichael. He's asking her for advice about what to do. So. This case is just a mess. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm sure uh, that kind of shenanigans goes on quite a bit. So the criminal defendants, Travis and Greg McMichael, they were alleging that they were trying to make a citizen's arrest. Does New York State have any type of provision for that where you can actually detain somebody if you've like witnessed a crime or something like that? 
You know, I've heard of it. I've never, I think it's like a very rarely actually used. I don't even, I don't, I never actually came across it in my almost 10 years of being a public defender there. So it doesn't seem to be something that happens in actuality very much. But uh, I mean, what I can say about these people is that's completely insane to be chasing somebody down. I mean, from what I understand, it sounds like he didn't, there wasn't even any valid reason to think he did anything. I, it's, you know, I, I, try to be careful in accusing people of racism. It sounds to me like there was a lot of racism going on here um, in a very disturbing way. And, you know, if if you're so worried about it, call the cops. Yeah. But chasing somebody down and shooting him is not, um, you know, and it, it is hard to believe that this wasn't a very racist crime. Yeah, absolutely. Have you dealt with felony murder cases when, when you were a public defender? I did. You know, so I did appeals exclusively. Well, I actually should say mostly. I never did a like a trial trial. I did some hearings in front of trial judges, but my main bread and butter was appeals. And so it's a little different, but, you know, so I would read the trial transcript rather than actually being in front of the trial and then find errors to raise on appeal. So I had one case, you know, I can't quite remember the details. It was probably eight years ago. It was, I do recall it being very interesting though. He had, my client had allegedly participated in a plan to rob a drug dealer, but he wasn't actually physically present. He was sort of telling the other guy what to do. And he, I believe he was, had said on a recording, the phones were tapped. You know, you might, this might be a good place to go get guns or something. I think that was the crucial statement. And he ended up, uh, that drug dealer ended up getting killed by the co-defendant. And my client was ultimately, I believe he was ultimately convicted of felony murder, if I recall correctly. But all of the recordings indicated that he didn't have any desire to kill this person. He was really just trying to rob him of the drug. So it was interesting. I tried to make some arguments about lack of intent, but, you know, it's hard. You have someone on a recording talking about, uh, <laughs> this is where you can go to get the, <laughs> get the guns. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say out here in California, the one felony murder that I think people are a little bit more accepting of is uh, arson. You know, a couple of these arsonists out here start these huge wildfires and a couple people die. Um, they're, they're being charged with felony murder. So you can, I mean, in some scenarios, I think you can see the justification of the felony murder rule, especially in California. Yeah. I don't think that's felony murder. I think what you would argue is um, that they should be charged with some kind of like reckless manslaughter or like reckless level or i think actually at that in new york i think you could charge them with depraved indifference murder because their actions it's not it's not so much that you're saying they had no intent to commit it but their co-defendant did something it's just that they said something so um grossly negligent or however you want to put it so depraved so we i mean in new york for instance uh my office not i personally had had a case where a woman got extremely drunk and high like took like 20 ecstasy pills or something and drove naked i mean she was so she was so under the influence <laughs> that she was driving naked and you know wrong way on a highway ended up killing someone that was depraved indifference murder so i think i would say that that you could use that similar philosophy to convict someone of starting a wildfire like that Convict someone of murder. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into the Kyle Rittenhouse case. This one is extremely complicated. I'm doing the research. There's so many moving parts, but the same thing with this case. I mean, I was listening to some of the earlier mainstream media clips, and it just blows my mind 
how inaccurate they are. Yeah. So I, and it's hard to know if it's intentional or not, but anyways, I'll, I'll do my best to just start with the facts here. So Kyle Rittenhouse, he was only 17 when this happened, and this was in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And you kind of have to back up a little bit on August 23rd of 2020, Jacob Blake, another citizen of Kenosha, Wisconsin, an African-American man, he was shot by police, which resulted in him being paralyzed. The police were responding to a domestic complaint made by his fiance. The officers alleged he had a knife. He refused to drop it. And so they shot him. The officers ended up actually getting acquitted or they were not charged, I should, I should say, with anything um, later on on January 25th of 2021. But going back to August 23rd, you know, Jacob Blake, African-American male getting shot by police. This is a few months after the George Floyd incident. So the next day there was massive protests. On August 25th, Rittenhouse, he shows up to the protests. Apparently he, he lives about 30 minutes away from there, but Apparently he had some family there. He's kind of like a wannabe police officer, EMT guy. I mean, in hindsight, should have stayed home. Again, common theme from these two cases, but he put himself in this dangerous situation. You got to cut him some slack. He's only 17, you know, he's very young. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, he shows up to these protests. I don't know if he showed up with a rifle or somebody gave it to him. I couldn't really figure that out, but either way, that's besides the point because it, they were ruled that he was allowed to have a gun. I guess Wisconsin is open carry state if you have a rifle. So that wasn't really at issue how he got the gun or, or, or that fact. So anyways, he's at this, this riot, which it turned out being a riot. You know, it started as a peaceful protest, turned into a riot. There was, you know, a couple buildings burned down. A lot of violence and and mayhem. So he shows up. He's trying to, I guess, calm the situation, which didn't work. And the first guy who comes after him is a, a man by the name of Joseph Rosenbaum. So by all accounts, this guy chased him, cornered him into a parking lot, reached for his gun, was acting belligerently, and so Kyle Rittenhouse shot him and killed him. After that, he tried to run to contact the police or, or some sort of, he ran for safety, I guess. And these two men chased him, a guy by the name of Anthony Huber, who's 26, and a guy by the name of Gage Grosskrauts, who was also 26. They thought he was an active shooter. So they're chasing him down. Anthony Huber hits Rittenhouse with a skateboard. Rittenhouse turns around, shoots and kills him. Gage Grosskrauts reaches for his gun, pulls it on Kyle Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse fires in self-defense and shoots Gage Grosskrauts in the arm, in the bicep. So he didn't kill him. He killed two people and wounded one. Mr. Rittenhouse was eventually acquitted on all charges um, after pleading self-defense. So here's my question to you. I mean, obviously, in hindsight, this guy should have just stayed home, you know, not put yourself in danger. I have questions about self-defense. So 
let's put this case to the side. Let's say I'm I'm walking down the street and I turn a corner and I see a guy with a rifle and he's carrying it. And I don't know what the hell's going on. And I go up to him and I try to disarm him. He pulls the gun on me, shoots and kills me. I mean, in that situation, do, do you get to claim self-defense? I know it's, I know every case is different, but walk me through that type of scenario. Well, you can claim it. <laughs> Lots of people raise the defense at trial, whether they you know, actually get acquitted on that basis is another question. Again, it's, I believe it's state law, you know, it varies by state, the precise definition, but in New York, and I don't think it varies that much by state, although like the stand your ground laws, for instance, create a whole new wrench uh, in this, those laws in the South. But in New York, you have, you have to show that you're basically being threatened with deadly force. I mean, if you use deadly force, you have to show that you're being threatened with deadly force, that you can't, don't really have the opportunity to run away or do something else. And there's an initial aggressor thing. So if you start it, you can't really claim self-defense, but if the other person escalates it, so you say, say you punch someone and then he pulls out a gun and shoots you, he can't claim self-defense. <laughs> he could punch you and claim self-defense, but he can't shoot you and claim self-defense. So there's a lot of proportionality issues, you know, too. So you, you can't just, um, and if, so in your, you know, hypothetical where you go up to somebody with a gun, I mean, if he wasn't actually threatening you with the gun, I don't think you can claim self, or I don't think you can, I think you're unlikely to be acquitted of, uh, on a self-defense theory. Uh, on the other hand, if you're walking down a street, the street and he goes up to you and points the gun at you, then I, you know, that's another situation. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, the thing that bothers me is it's just, it, it would be so alarming to see some guy walking down the street with a huge rifle in his hands, you know. You're well, we all of... say, see it all the time with cops. <laughs> I actually, it always makes me a little nervous. I don't love it. <laughs> Where I went to school at Chico State, they used to bust out the horses, you know, and cops rolling around on horses. That always freaked me out. I felt like I was more likely to get kicked in the face by a horse than, <laughs> you know, something bad happening to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, th these three... These three different men who were who were shot by Rittenhouse, they all have different stories. So this guy, Joseph Rosenbaum, he was the first one killed by Rittenhouse. This guy has a horrific criminal history, like the worst of the worst things you can imagine. You know, I try to keep the show PG, but a lot of people say that he was just suicidal and, and ran into this guy and, you know, was reaching for his gun and stuff. The other two, again, it gets it gets a lot more complicated. Anthony Huber, he's he witnessed prior shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum. So again, he thought he was a he thought Rittenhouse was an active shooter. So you, you got to feel for him and his family. That's yeah, traumatic. So again, I mean, the common theme with both of these cases, if just a general takeaway, is you know, don't try to be a policeman, don't don't take the law into your own hands, you know. Try, Try to stay home and call the cops if you feel threatened, right? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I saw was interesting about Rittenhouse and, you know, I really saw it on Twitter was, it was like the left was trying to make this into a, uh, another, this was a racist, you know, thing because he got uh, acquitted, even though none of his victims were black, but I suppose because he was at a Black Lives Matter protest, that's how it, they made it into that. And then the right has tried to make Rittenhouse into a hero. And both of these things are just weird takes in my opinion <laughs> like he was a stupid 17 year old kid 
I mean, I'm, I've been always, and certainly, you know, as a criminal defense lawyer, I was a huge proponent of uh, leniency with youth sentences. I mean, we know that kids' brains aren't developed the same way, and there's really quite a bit of evidence showing that until you're 25 or so, you don't actually sort of process long-term risks. Um, you're easily influenced by other people, like all sorts of things that I think affect your judgment and also make you more rehabilitatable, which is one of the goals of sentencing in criminal justice in the criminal justice system. So, you know, the mere fact that he was 17 to me was like a big thing. And I thought, you know, if this, uh, we shouldn't be demonizing a 17 year old. And it was a little crazy to me that the left, that you know, <laughs> we're supposed to understand these sorts of things and believe in people's uh, redemptive pro you know, potential, et cetera, that we're turning this kid into <laughs> to a demonist. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, he's also not a hero. Exactly. I think that's spot on. And he probably shouldn't be allowed to uh, bring a gun to any no. riots or <laughs> no. protests anymore. I mean, that's another whole can of worms. But yeah. Yeah. So I have a question for you. The defense of others, how is that different from self-defense? Like if, is there, do you have to be like really close to somebody? Like if it's your mother, your father, your wife, your kids, I understand like defense of others. Is there like, if you're defending your neighbor or your uncle, like, does that come into play at all? I don't think so. I mean, it might go into play in assessing your mindset, but in my experience, it doesn't matter. It's the same principle as self-defense. And it's basically exactly the same analysis, you know, it's just applied to somebody else. If uh, So if somebody, um, you know, is, is going up to me and is about to punch me, you can't pull out a gun and shoot the person. Um, well, you can, but you might be convicted of murder. If you punch the person or tried to stop them from attacking me, that would be a different uh, than, you know, you'd have a valid defense to any charges resulting from that. But there's, well, you know, the same proportionality that basically all the same factors substitute the person. What if a six foot guy is running up to my two year old and trying to punch him in the face? Can I shoot him? Well, yeah. So then you would argue um, <laughs> you might be able to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if if you know you would have to sh you would have to show that you were legitimately well so I, I and this i think varies from state to state whether it's a subjective or an objective assessment in new york it's well it has a subjective and an, and an objective element it's a little confusing it's like you have to show that a reasonable person in your position would think that their child was in uh you know imminent danger of death and that you actually believe that so say the six foot guy comes, you know, is rushing at your kid, but you know, we have secret, you know, secretly that he's just an actor, you know, whatever. You can't, <laughs> you can't then say, well, I don't, you know, because subjectively you knew that he wasn't going to do anything. And then, you know, if, if it's, uh, then there's the, you know, objective element as well. So. Okay. So does it have to be like, can it be serious harm or do you have to be in fear of death of yourself or others? Or can like, if you have a belief that somebody's going to come up to one of your friends and just beat the snot out of them, maybe not kill them, but beat them really bad, can you use deadly force in that scenario? You're supposed to use sort of the same level of force, but I think what any real, you know, anyone would understand in such a situation is like, well, we can't know exactly if someone is intending to, you know, <laughs> right. 
<laughs> beat somebody up. I mean, how, okay, how can you know for sure that it's going to be brain damage or death or not, you know, just a serious. So I think most people, you know, if somebody was punching your friend repeatedly and that, pounding their head against the concrete, I don't think there are a lot of juries that would convict you if the person, if you shot the person. Got it. Well, let's talk about your, your work now with the new Civil Liberties Alliance. So what are you doing over there and why did you make the switch from uh, being a public defender to working for that organization? Yeah, well, I... Um... In, you know, when all the uh, COVID stuff started, I was sort of one of the few people on the left, I think, who was really against it. Um, I really thought not only was it a horrendous, did it entail horrendous civil liberties violations, it was also, you know, on a cost-benefit level, the, most of the reactions were going to cause more harm than good. So I was, I was against it in many ways, both from a utilitarian and non-utilitarian perspective, I guess you could say. And... I started, it took me a while to get up the courage to write about it in my own name, uh, about six months, but I eventually did. Uh, so I became involved with a, an organization called the American Institute for Economic Research, which hosted the Great Barrington Declaration. And uh, I got to know a lot of the people there, scientists uh, that wrote the Great Barrington Declaration and other scientists who support it. And I, so I just got more and more involved in this world. and eventually heard about the new civil liberties alliance they were um, doing a lot of lockdown related litigation uh, mostly against business closures i so i uh i mean the other aspect of this was that people i heard people at my office were very um upset by my (laughs) extracurricular activities and i realized you know it's going to be tough for me to go back to the office a lot of my friendships were freeing with i had a lot of close friends at work and in New York, and a lot of the pre-COVID friendships were fraying because people really disapproved of my take on this and my activism on the subject. So it seemed like the right time to make a life move. So I, I applied for the job, got the job, and they wanted me to move to DC. So I, from New York, so I agreed to do that. Um, and sort of, I guess, started fresh, you could say. <laughs> By the time that I joined, I joined them in April. Lockdowns were more or less over. Fingers crossed that continues. <laughs> so this sort of new frontier was vaccine mandates in the uh, in the fighting COVID tyranny world. So I um, brought a couple of those uh, cases against universities and actually just uh, had one that was on behalf of federal employees against the employee vaccine mandate just a couple of hours ago. The judge denied our request for a preliminary injunction and temporary restraining order but more on jurisdictional grounds. So I'm not sure exactly where we're going to go from there. Well, cool. I feel the same way. That's why I really enjoy talking to you because I'm on the left as well. And I've been speaking out against lockdowns from the beginning. You know, I'm, I work a lot with uh, labor unions and uh, working class people being a work comp attorney. And I wish my friends on the left realized that the lockdowns hurt these people tremendously. I think 70% of restaurants in California had to close down during the lockdowns. These are hurting working class people. The rich people are doing just fine. You know, you can zoom and and the stock market's great. And uh, that's been the most frustrating thing to me. And they are not following the science. In July of 2020, four months after COVID, out here in California, when we knew that if you were outdoors, you're, you're pretty much safe, especially if you keep a distance, Governor Newsom was still shutting down the beaches. And yeah. you could go to Best Buy, you could go to Target, <laughs> but, but you couldn't go to the beach. 
And yeah. uh, you know, same thing with outdoor dining. It was so frustrating. You know, nobody's forcing you to go eat outside. If you're scared, stay at home. And what's so frustrating is it's so paternalistic. You need the government to tell you what to do. No, right. most people are not burying their head in the sand and they will make the right decision for their family. And um, I'm for universal health care. I'm pro-union. I'm anti-war and I'm pro-worker. And it, that's what's been so frustrating with being anti-lockdown is, um, you know, you get labeled as a, a right-wing extremist, right? Yeah, it's very frustrating. I mean, it's just bizarre watching the people who supposedly champion the American worker now <laughs> are, are happy about the fact that the employer has complete control over your health care decisions. I mean, it's, you know, everybody, and, and I mean, I agree with you that in every way, our response to COVID has harmed the poor and working class people the most. You know, even mask mandates, uh, people say well, masks aren't a big deal. I agree that wearing a mask into a grocery store for 20 minutes is not a big deal. Um, although I would argue there's a dehumanization element and the, you know, the fact that we're allowing the government to sort of have this control over us is problematic. And I don't see why other people don't see that that way. But but it's the workers, the people who are wearing it eight hours a day. You know, I, I wore one on the plane for four hours the other day. It actually starts to hurt my ears. I mean, I, the back of my ears, like I, I know it sounds stupid, but it was actually like painful enough. It was bothering me. And so the workers who have to wear these things eight hours, 10 hours every day, the little kids in schools, it's it's like the most power, powerless among us. And I, I don't see how this is a leftist <laughs> take on things. And then the mandates, most of my, well, actually, sorry, I should say all of my clients because I've chosen to bring lawsuits on behalf of people with their natural immunity. But most of the people who don't want the vaccine, I get so many emails from people who don't want the vaccine. Most of them have natural immunity. like. Yeah, a lot of the healthcare workers on the, who we cheered on the front lines at the beginning, now we're firing them from their jobs because they don't want an unnecessary medical procedure because they have natural immunity. I mean, it's crazy. And the lack of thinking about unintended consequences, you know, I think all these people think you can just, oh, we're just, if we just impose this mandate, COVID will go away or, and everyone will get the vaccine. That's not how it works. First of all, you should know that, you know, everyone with common sense should know that Americans or most people don't like things shoved down their throats. And if you tell them to do something, they're probably gonna resist it more than if you did, if you just softly um, uh, recommended it. And, but that aside, like, you know, I just saw someone wrote a, wrote a proposal that you should have to show proof of vaccination and a negative COVID test to fly domestically. I mean, who is this gonna benefit? This is gonna benefit the, test, my, the testing industrial complex. That it's gonna hurt, you know, lower income people who can't afford to test all the time. And you're talking about an un unprecedented restrictions on freedom of movement that God knows when they're going to end. I mean, <laughs> yeah, be careful. There's the, what is it? The Omicron variant? Now? Yeah, the Omicron. Omicron has been keeping me up at night. <laughs> I should have uh, studied my Greek alphabet more. <laughs> It, it was new, the NU, and then they switched it to Omicron. I don't understand. I think Omicron sounded scarier or something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was just contacted about a case where this guy works in the in the healthcare industry. He has offered to get tested every single day, and he oh has been God. tested every single day since the vaccine mandate, and he's still in uh, jeopardy of losing his job. Um, so you're not following the science. Again, vaccinated people can still spread, you know, less likely if you're vaccinated, you are less likely to spread it. That's true but it's not a hundred percent. And no. so really the safest thing to do is get tested every day. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. 
it's just, it's crazy. And again, with the free speech thing too, it's like, I feel like I lost my mind, you know, again, being a liberal my whole life. uh, One of the things I loved about the left was we were champions of free speech, freedom for the thought you hate, you know, that's the whole point. Not anymore. (laughs) Not anymore. No, now they want to ban you and uh, censor you. And that is so dangerous for so many different reasons. So it's frustrating. I feel like a man without a party right now. Yeah. Well, yeah, there are plenty of people I think who are describing themselves as politically homeless. <laughs> I'm yes. certainly one of them. Yeah. Cause I certainly don't want to uh, join the Republican party. No. At all. I have a, a horrible taste in my mouth from uh, the Iraq wars year. That's what really yeah. got me uh, into politics actually. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand why people, more people don't see the parallel actually between what's going on now in the Iraq war situation. So let me play a devil's advocate for a bit though. Um, So, you know, it is frustrating with these government mandates, but if you're a private business, you should have a freedom of association, they argue. And what's your argument for private businesses wanting to mandate the vaccine? So I do think that private businesses have quite a degree of latitude in implementing vaccine mandates. One exception is, you know, that the federal government, for instance, one of their several mandates was the OSHA mandate, which requires employers who have um, over 100 employees to mandate the vaccine. I think that law is quite illegal. And the Fifth Circuit agreed with me recently, it looks like, in a you know, preliminary ruling, but still. So in that case, what you have is the federal government commandeering private businesses to sort of accomplish its end goal. Like what Biden is actually trying to do is get is force all Americans to get vaccinated, but he can't do that. So he's instrumentalizing private businesses to do that, uh, which the Constitution, you know, the case law is quite clear. You can't do that. That or that constitutes government action and is then, you know, challengeable on that basis. But private companies acting solely on their own, like making a, a cost benefit association and assessment and saying, uh, you know, I think it's in our best interest to mandate, have an employee mandate. I think they kind of have that. I, I don't love it, but <laughs> they don't have that right. I think one exception would be that, or one argument you might be able to make anyway is the EUA status of the vaccines. You know, they're only authorized for emergency use under the Emergency Use Authorization Act. And that statute says that you should, you have the right to refuse or accept the product or you have the right to be informed of your right to refuse or accept the product so i think one could make an argument that a private business premising your employment upon taking an eua medical product is uh is illegal i thought that got full approval well it's complicated okay <laughs> the uh one of the vaccines the five so the pfizer community the one that's on the, the one if you walk into a drugstore and you get the pfizer or CBS or whatever, it's gonna be the BioNTech, which hasn't been approved. The community has been approved. So the FDA fact sheet says that they are interchangeable. But if you actually look at their formulas, they're not the same ingredients. So one of them has 11, one has 10, they're not totally the same amounts. And they're legal, they say also they're legally distinct. So I I wasn't sure if that was just like a patent law thing, but when I looked into it, it looks like the formulas are not identical. So, and the community is not actually available and apparently not going to be actually in distribution for about a year or more. So there are a lot of conspiracy theories about what's happening here. Some people think it has to do with, you know, you can't, 
be liable for EUA vaccines. But I think there's an argument to be made. And the one that's been approved for children is only EUA. So I think when it you know comes to kids, it's a, it's a very strong argument. Well, the liability issue is, is extremely interesting to me because I think even if they are, even if they get full approval, you cannot sue these companies directly. They have immunity. So you have to go to this vaccine compensation system. And I work in the compensation system with workers' compensation. It's a horrible system. I mean, there's like, you don't get these big jury trials. You don't get a lot of money. Theoretically, they're supposed to be quicker, which they're not. But um, yeah, it's, it is kind of ironic that these companies like Pfizer and Moderna can make these vaccines, but not get sued directly for any adverse reactions. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the, there have been um, a number of courts now and the office of legal counsel wrote this memo in over the summer saying, oh, the provision of the EUA statute that says you have the right to be informed that you have the right to accept or refuse it just means you have the right to be told that it doesn't mean that we can't you know basically force you to take the thing by promising your employment on it and that's it's a crazy reading of the statute that makes it completely hollow ian you have the right to refuse this vaccine we might take your job away if you do but you have the right to refuse it that's ridiculous that can't possibly be what congress meant and another reason we know that's not what congress meant is that there's a corresponding statute that allows the president to waive uh, informed consent for members of the military. If Congress had meant for the EUA, for EUA to be able to be waived for anybody, then why would they have a special provision for the military only? It doesn't make any sense. The thing that's frustrating too is the testing. You know, with Biden's mandate, I think the alternative was you could get tested every week. And if the employer paid for that, and if the testing wasn't so painful, I think that's perfectly reasonable, especially with with companies over 100 people that are actually physically there. I think that makes sense. I don't understand why the science, I mean, I haven't been tested in a while, but last time I got tested, they freaking jabbed something way up my nose. It was horrible. So if they could fix that, you know, that would seem way more reasonable. Yeah, I'm not really a fan of that because I just don't like, I just don't think it's a good idea to be living in that sort of biomedical state. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, people can get the vaccine. The vaccine reduces the chance of going, you know, to the hospital by a lot. So everybody has the choice. And I think we should stop living in this sort of fear, coronavirus fear world. (laughs) That sounds pretty reasonable. (laughs) Oh, okay. So the new Civil Liberties Alliance, what's the difference between that and the ACLU? (laughs) Well, we actually stand up for civil liberties. (laughs) So we were just started about three or four years ago by a professor at Columbia Law School, Philip Hamburger. The core sort of core mission is to fight against administrative overreach. So most of the lawsuits we bring are against agencies, although there have been some that are just uh, sort of executive branch case. Like there was one we brought against the governor of Massachusetts for business closures. I would say it's well, now I think the ACLU has just become uh, overrun by sort of leftist propaganda. I mean, I don't know if you saw it. They came out in favor of vaccine mandates, saying that this protects the most vulnerable. I mean, I'm sorry, but civil liberties are about individual rights. This is the most ridiculous reading. of. <laughs> and then the ACLU came out against the Rittenhouse verdict, which is, to me, shocking on a couple of levels, because it's not really up to a civil liberties organization to be questioning a jury verdict. 
And they appear to not understand that the burden of proof is on the prosecution from their statement. I mean, just stunning stuff. <laughs> they're, they just become an embarrassment. Yeah, I think it's changed recently because uh, I interviewed actually the first female president of the ACLU, Nadine Strassen. And um, I, I don't know if it was during her era or maybe right before hers. I mean, they were defending Nazis free speech rights. I mean, that again, that's the whole principle of the First Amendment, freedom for the thought you hate. And yeah. um, now it's just, it, yeah, I agree with you. It's it's very political now. And that is the whole point of the system. The whole point of the Constitution is individual rights. Yeah. When you go down utilitarian thinking what's good for everybody, you get horrific decisions. Read the Korematsu versus United States decision. Read the Buck versus Bell decision where they sterilize people who they called feeble-minded. When you start thinking what's good for society as a whole, it's a really slippery slope. The founders were smart. The whole idea, this whole contract is about individual rights. And uh, we've lost that today. It's, it's Yeah. Crazy. It's funny, you know, I have a sort of, I've made a lot of friends over the past uh, about a year, mostly through Twitter, actually, who are a lot, a lot of people similar to us, sort of from the left, but very critical of this approach. And we've noticed that the group is over, not, I shouldn't say overwhelmingly, but the proportionally, there's a large percentage of people from Soviet backgrounds and uh, Arab backgrounds, either parents, children of immigrants or immigrants themselves. And I think, you know, myself included, my father is Palestinian. I think that you recognize repressive regimes when you see it and you understand, you know, why it's really, why individual rights are really important because in these sorts of governments, there, there is no such thing. And I think you can see again, what, what, where there's a lot of familiarity with what happens when we, when we allow people to be persecuted in the quest for greater good. Exactly. Or safety or public safety or, yeah. or in the Korematsu decision where we forcibly interned Japanese American citizens not during World War II, not one of which was ever convicted of treason. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. So we gotta, we got to understand our history and, and learn from it. But um, I won't take up too much more of your time. I really appreciate you coming on to my podcast again and talking about these issues and keep up the good fight. Thank you so much, Ian. Thanks for having me back again.